Well, good morning. My name is Matt. I'm the youth director here at Christ Community Church. It's good to see you all this morning. If you would, be turning in your Bibles. We're going to pick up in 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to actually finish up that chapter this morning, starting in verse 22. And so as you're turning your way there, um, as we've done each week in this sermon series so far, it's important for us to kind of take a step back and do a quick review of everything Peter said so far. This is a letter, and everything he's been saying has been building on itself. And we've been building up to this point in chapter 1. And so to review, remember he began by addressing his audience as elect exiles. And with those two words alone, he identified some critical things about their identity. First, that these were people who had been graciously chosen by God. Not, as we emphasize, because they were better than anyone else, but simply because God loves them. And had called them, as he calls his people, us today, to be his royal priesthood. A people set apart for the Great Commission work. Of spreading the good news of Jesus. And at the same time, he called them exiles because this work was not without opposition. They were spread out throughout um, Asia Minor, which is part of the Roman Empire, and that would be modern-day Turkey. And as they were spread out, they were under fierce opposition from the Roman Empire. It was not an easy task they had been called to. They were scorned and despised and attacked by the world's greatest superpower of the day. And for that reason, knowing everything that they were going through, Peter immediately reminded them of the living hope they have in Christ. By God's grace alone, through faith alone, and in Christ alone, they had been born again to a living hope, to something that was vibrant and real and could not be taken from them. Their lives had been changed. And while they were awaiting Christ's return, they had the promise of an imperishable inheritance kept in heaven for them that would not be taken away, life everlasting with God and a renewed creation. But in the meantime, Peter urged them, he said, hold fast to Christ in this hope. And know that even though you are suffering, God's grace gives your suffering meaning. And although in our lives we don't always know what that meaning is, we can't work out all the details, we know that the gospel is so rich and so true that nothing in our lives is meaningless. And that is that's such glorious news that the angels themselves, Peter goes on to say, long to learn more about this story, about the gospel. And so he unfurls all of that truth before us, and then he turns from the indicative to the imperative. He turns from the indicative that God loves us, that Christ came and will come again, to the imperative of how we should now live as God's people. And last week, as we started to, to dive into the imperative, we saw how Peter exhorts Christians to pursue a life of holiness, to cultivate a well-thought life, a life of holiness, awe, and reverence. And he was not giving us an impossible task. A lot of times when we hear holiness, we feel perfection. We associate holiness with just this perfect standard that we can never live up to. But being holiness is not, or being holy is not being perfect. It means we reflect the character of our God. So little bit by little bit, we grow in that by his grace. And so the exhortation to be holy as our God is holy that we learned last week, that actually is the crucial foundation for everything we're going to read this morning. If we don't have that in our rearview mirror and beneath our feet this morning. Everything we hear today is, is baseless. They fit together. But before we jump into this morning's text, I'd like us to ask, consider a question. And it's not the most comfortable question. It's a hard question, not because it's difficult to answer, but because it really forces us to look in the mirror and to think about some things we often say without necessarily thinking them all the way through. The question is this. How would you complete the following sentence? People are blank. You know, we have bumper stickers and coffee cups and things like that that will answer this question. But the follow-up question is, what does the way you complete this sentence reveal about your heart? 
And so if you work in retail or hospitality or food services, um, like many of us do, or any kind of job where you serve tons of customers every day, you're likely to be tempted to say, man, people are rude, they're selfish, they're demanding, they're uncaring, they forget that other people exist. If you work in the corporate world, and you've seen all the conniving things people can do to get ahead, you say, they're just selfish jerks, do whatever they want to get whatever they want. I've got a friend in med school, and some of the stories he's, he tells me about people and the things they do to get in the emergency room, it's like, man, if you work in medicine, you must think these people are just fools. All the crazy things they do, and then they don't listen to the doctors to get better. And we Atlantans, we're all too familiar with that seething rage you feel in traffic when someone cuts you off and drives like they're the only person on the highway, and you mutter under your breath, I hate people. Or maybe your answer's a little more subtle. You don't necessarily answer this with your words, but the way you live your life answers the question just the same. Maybe you don't really open up to anyone about anything. You've got all these things you're carrying with you, hopes and dreams that have been unfulfilled or or mistakes and, and things that haunt you from your past, but you don't open up to anyone, so for you, people are not to be trusted. Or maybe you only interact with people if they will get you something you want. And so for you, people are a means to, end, to an end, whether that end is pleasure or money or success or just being known and loved and popular. Or we might try to push back and might say, well, you know, look, when I say people are crazy, for example, I mean people, like this ethereal thing, people out there, not you guys, not the people actually care about, but that doesn't make it any better because if we try to just say, I just mean somebody else, not you who I'm talking to now, we're still overlooking the unalterable truth that's at the core of the matter, that every single human being on this planet, no matter how broken, battered, or boring, no matter how obnoxious, annoying, or angry, every single human being is made in the image of God, and therefore, every single human being is someone we as Christians have been called by the Lord Jesus to love insofar as we are able. But we can't do that if our anthropology is all out of whack. And our anthropology is the nerdy word for your beliefs about humanity. We're all theologians, and we're all living out our beliefs about humans every day. Every time we say something like, I hate people, people are crazy, people are stupid, we're living that out in Atlanta traffic, in Walmart, at home, at work, online, everywhere. And as we're about to see Peter's message to us this morning, it goes right to the heart of how we think about human beings, starting with each other. He's telling us the indicative of God's love for us radically transforms the way we interact with everyone, starting here and branching out into the world, not even excluding our enemies. And so the key truth of our passage this morning is this. We must cultivate a sincere and earnest love for one another precisely because we've been born again of the imperishable word of God. And so as we start to explore this, let's look at verse 22. We're just going to take one verse to start out, and we're going to see a love that is sincere and earnest. So if you would, please follow along with me to hear the words of our God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So this is just a truly awesome verse. It's not even a whole sentence, and it's packed with meaning. And a lot of, a lot of uh, the words in here, just as an initial observation, none of these ideas are very popular or likely to excite the typical American. We don't walk around with uh, you know, obedience on our T-shirts or our coffee cups or um, thinking much about truth or our souls. Like these ideas are weighty. And they often push back against our values of choice and freedom and doing what we want and having it our way. 
But at the same time, at the same time, the whole world loves and really, really, really wants what comes next in this verse. The whole world is crying out for brotherly love. We can't stop singing about it or writing about it or making movies about it, searching for it, spending for it, crying over it. We all want this kind of love in our lives. During our time in 1 Peter, we've confronted several times, though, that none of us is perfect. And we're all very much afraid to kind of open up and reveal how imperfect we really are. And oftentimes it's because we're afraid that if we do that, we're not going to find this kind of sincere love. We're afraid that if someone knows just how I fall short and my unique imperfections, that all the baggage I carry with me, then I am going to lose out on my chance to find this kind of love. And so we, we stay shallow. We don't wade out into the sea of the unknown where we can't control the narrative of our lives. We skate over thin ice as fast as possible, and we only talk about trivial things and sporting events, and we only ever spend time in mutual entertainment. We don't let ourselves get to the point where our lives really intersect, and we're open to each other, and we're vulnerable, because we're afraid that someone might find out that in all of our broken humanity, there's a little bit of darkness in us, a little bit of ugliness and stinkiness, and just humanity in a broken world. But if that's how we live, then the only kind of love we're ever going to experience is going to fall far short of what of the kind of love we long for. It won't have much substance to it at all. And that is exactly why everything Peter says at the front end of this verse is so important. Because if we don't, if we ignore this, the first part of the verse, we're crying out for this kind of love in vain. If we want a love amongst ourselves that can bind up what's broken, that can unite people that have been separated that can forgive others when we've been wronged, we have to listen to the God of love, the God who quite literally loved his people to death. He knows what he's talking about. Like if I were to stand before you, I don't know why I'd say this from the pulpit, if I were to stand before you today and say, like, and announce right here, like, hey, I want to grow in my basketball skills. And then after church, Marcus would say, hey, I'll take you on as an apprentice and teach you. But I'd say, no, 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 that's okay, I don't need that. That'd be folly. You'd look at me and be like, what are you talking about? You said you wanted to go in basketball. That's the way to do it. Listen to the guy who knows what he's talking about. But that's often what we do when we ignore God's commands, when we ignore the call to discipleship, and yet we say we want to grow in love, or we say we want to experience this kind of love in our lives. The way to grow in it is to follow the God of love. So this quote I have in here from John Henry Jowett, he was a, a pastor at the... Uh, early 1900s, he wrote a lot of just great devotional commentaries. Not much of it's in print. You can find it for free online, though. And he wrote in his commentary on Peter the following. He says, Love's creation is not the immediate result of volition. Just as I can't will myself to be a better basketball player, you can't just choose and say, I'm going to be more loving, and that settles the matter. He goes on, he says, It's the issue of a process. We cannot command it, but we can grow it. It is not an alpha but an omega, the amen in a spiritual succession. If I want the flower, I must begin at the root. If I want the love, I must begin with obedience. The first stage towards a fervent affection is obedience to the truth. The soul yearns to be crowned and beautified by the grace of a delicate love. It must put itself in the posture of obedience to the truth. If we want to grow in love, then the life of discipleship matters. It's the route we must take. That's the path to grow in our affection for one another. Now, Peter began that verse by talking about our souls having been purified by our obedience to the truth. Now, if you're grammar geek, your first observation is like, hey, that's a perfect participle. And that means that the, the 
Um, the action there happened in the past and it continues to have effect in the present and into the future. But at the same time, in the Protestant, especially the Reformed world, maybe like my grammar aside, like I'm a little nervous, is Peter saying that I'm saved by my obedience and my works? We immediately start worrying and say, like, no, that's not true. That's not the gospel. He can't be teaching that. And you're right. He's not teaching that. And we don't have to spend all our time being worried about what he doesn't say. We know he's not teaching that our obedience is what saves us. We remember things we've already seen in this chapter in verses 8 and 9. He says, we are saved by faith in Christ. Our salvation comes from no other source alone than the grace of God poured out upon us in Christ and through our faith. Our obedience is not what saves us. Your obedience does not change God's love for you. And so when he talks about having been purified, at the very least what he's saying is that when you responded by faith to the gospel, God did something to you. He changed you. He purified you in that he set you apart as one of his redeemed and beloved children. That's one aspect of being purified, to be set apart as God's people for God's purposes. But at the same time, Peter is also saying that this purification, it continues. He's not saying that once you're converted, suddenly you're perfect and without sin. But he is saying that as you obey God, as you seek to follow his commandments, that does make a difference in your life. It changes us. And that's good news. It means that your obedience is not meaningless and it's not a hamster wheel. It's not in vain. But many of us, we wrestle with this, and for good reason, because a lot of times the change it just doesn't feel like it comes. And it often comes way more slowly than we'd like. And we'll dive into this a little bit more in the next point in the sermon. But for now, it's important for us to realize, at the very least, that what Peter is saying is that in Christ, change and growth really are possible. And notice the flow of his thought. And this helps us set the stage for seeing why so often we don't feel like we're changing and we're growing. The growth in purity is not just so that we could be closer to perfection. And we could feel a little more holy and a little more pure in that sort of perfect all about me sense. He's saying our purity, our holiness, all of this, our obedience is aimed at a sincere brotherly love. He says you have purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Our obedience is to make us people who can love one another better. Our growth as Christians is not measured by our nearness to perfection. It is measured by our increasing capacity to love our neighbors well. And that truth exposes one of Satan's favorite lies about holiness that we talked a little bit about last week, that holiness makes us better than somebody else. That holiness is all about this sort of cry to circle the wagons and throw stones at the world for what they're doing over there. But whenever God commands his people to be holy as he is holy in the Bible, he always immediately follows it with a call to go out and love your neighbor. We see this in Leviticus 19, where Peter is likely quoting that commandment of be holy as the Lord is holy. We see it in Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus calls us to love our enemies, one of the most famous passages in the Holy Testament. The same logic's there, and we see it here in 1 Peter. The call to holiness always leads to a call to love our neighbor. Would that we would know that. Would that Christians would be known for that. Rather than being known as those who are holy rollers and who are just a bunch of prudish snobs who only care about themselves. The call to holiness is a call to lean in, to listen, to serve, to be poured out, and to be devoted to the good of others. That's what it means to be holy as the Lord our God is holy. And that then is why Peter goes on to describe in great detail the kind of love he's calling us to. 
He says it needs to be a sincere brotherly love. And at the end of this verse, he says it needs to be from a pure heart. That's two ways of saying the same thing. We've got to mean it. It's got to be real. We can't just put on a mask of Southern hospitality or use language of hospitality and yet in our hearts be judging our brothers and sisters. I mean, I work for one of the most hospitable companies the world will probably ever see. And yet if all I do is use my workplace training to talk nice to people, but in my heart, I don't really care about them or I get home and I grumble about them to myself or to my wife or my other friends, I'm not actually loving people. And we wrestle with this day in and day out. It means if we go out and we meet with someone and you know, we had things we wanted to talk about, but instead they, they use most of the conversation to talk about something on their heart. We don't turn around and think, man, like, I didn't get to say anything. But we think, like, all right, how can I support this person and what they're going through right now? They've trusted me with this burden they have. And we love them well. It means if, if we say we're going to pray for someone, rather than that just being sort of the, the polite Christian thing to say, like, I'll be praying for you. Our yes is a yes, and we do it. And when we have an issue with someone, we talk to that person instead of everyone else about it. That's what it means to have a love that's sincere. And we, we have to cultivate it, we have to grow it, and it's hard work, which is exactly why the other way Peter describes it, he says you have to love one another earnestly. And the word he uses here is just a really great word. He uses it again in chapter 4 in the same exact way where he calls us again to love one another earnestly. And the word's used two other times in the New Testament. The first time is in Luke 22, verse 44, where Jesus is praying in Gethsemane, pouring himself out before God in agony, thinking about the cross, everything he's about to endure. When it says he prays earnestly, it's that same word. And in Acts 12, verse 5, the church is described as praying earnestly for Peter himself because they're afraid as he's in prison, they think he's about to be killed by Rome before an angel intervenes and sets him free. And so when, when Peter says, love one another earnestly, that's the kind of effort and, and strain and, and work he's got in mind. He's saying this isn't something you can do casually. It's not something you can do without being stretched and flexing some muscle. The idea in the word, in the Greek root, is actually of being stretched. And a lot of commentators will give the following picture. They'll say, imagine a stringed instrument. And as you tune it, you're putting more and more strain on it. Not so that it will snap, but you hit that one point where suddenly it can just evoke the, the sweetest of sounds. What Peter's calling us to do is he's saying, look at your life and see all the things God has put in your life and look for ways that you can pour yourself into other people. Yes, it's going to stretch you. Yes, you're going to sweat. Yes, it's going to be costly. But think of the music. Think of the love that can be poured out from such effort and such love. But to do that, we have to kill one of the most cherished American idols, an idol that has just built up industries left and right, um, an idol that, that um, definitely supports my paycheck, and that idol is convenience. Because if you ever love somebody, you know loving someone is not convenient. Um, it's one of the, the things I think I learned first in marriage is like, yeah, okay, semester syllabus says this, and loving my wife has none of that, like the syllabus just got to go to the side, like, these things don't line up neatly. And I realized like in undergrad, even when, we, when I was dating Kate, like I could still manage things like all around what I wanted to do and I could make things convenient. But once I had taken that covenant vow and she was in my life, like, okay, if I'm gonna do this and I'm gonna take these vows seriously, like my convenience has to go to the side. And so we know that and we know that in a lot of ways about family and marriage, but I also think it's worth us exploring how do we let convenience shape the way we do church? We don't have a building here. 
Um, and that can easily, in Metro Atlanta, especially with our church where we're spread out, and we've got people all the way up in White and Cartersville, and we've got people all the way down in, in Marietta, like we are spread out. And it's really easy to say, well, if we don't have a centralized building we can go to in the middle of the week, then getting together and loving each other, well, that can be tough. But we have homes and we have apartments, and there are hundreds of great places to grab coffee, chicken sandwiches, and other quick bites to eat. <laughs> and we can get together. We can't do anything about the traffic. But we can do something about our schedules. And we can do something about what we value. I recently read Rosaria Butterfield's new book on hospitality. It's called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. And I, I really, I can't recommend it highly enough. Like, if you are looking for a book to just kind of explore some of these ideas, like, this is the book to get. It's awesome. And she fills it not only with great teaching, but also with a ton of stories, not so she can toot her own horn, but really so she can say, like, you can do this. Like, this is how you can live this out. And her main point is to say, to middle-class suburbanites, like many of us, we are some of the most blessed people by God with an amazing array of blessings so that we can be some of the most hospitable people on the planet. Most of us have our own home or at least are renting a place where we, where we lay down our heads at night and we have enough space to have other people over. We have a refrigerator. We can make meals. We can have people over. And one of the points she makes, though, is that what keeps us from unlocking our potential to love one another well is we have these images in our mind from like HDTV and all those magazines at the grocery store of like perfect settings of hospitality where everything's like really neat and the kids are all smiling wearing polo shirts and it's great and you're like that that just can't do that um if you're a homeschool family you're like yeah no that's not happening like homeschool houses we all have clutter everywhere i remember growing up like having people over was a chore and i felt that like we had to clean for two days and it took forever and we didn't do it much and so if we butterfield's point though she's like so of course if that's your standard like you're not going to do it a lot because it's hard and impossible so she calls for radically ordinary hospitality. She says, don't worry if the house is a mess. That just means you live there. And everyone else lives in their house too, so it's okay. She says, just have people over. Let it become a normal part of your life. Let loving one another well, as we read in the assurance of pardon, that should be our DNA as a church. And again, we can't all do that with each other. There are a couple hundred of us here, but imagine if we all started with someone here and then we reached out. It would be amazing. The point, though, is that if perfection is our standard, then loving people is always, always, no matter what, it's going to feel inconvenient and seem impossible. But if we listen to Peter and sincerity is our goal, then we have been set free in Christ from finding the perfect opportunity to love someone well. We can just be earnest about doing it. And it's okay if it's not perfect. It's okay if, we, if it gets a little awkward. If we slip up and, you know, make some meal and it's not very good or whatever, you know, you invite people over and like, this game's great. Like, come play it and we'll pray afterwards and be a great night of fellowship. And they hate the game. And you're like, well, that was really awkward. But you did something. It was good. I'm maybe speaking from experience. Um, you know, you did something. You started. You started forging a relationship. And in Christ, that's not in vain. But it all starts with us asking ourselves, how are you cultivating your ability to love others sincerely and earnestly? As Cameron said last week, talking about holiness, if we're not cultivating these things, if we're not doing anything to grow in it, then we're not growing. It doesn't happen automatically. And there are several ways to start, as we've already mentioned. And, and I, don't, I don't want us to feel this as a burden. Um, again, you know, we talk a lot about how uh, we have a, a ton of introverts here. Uh, I don't even know what I am. Like, one time I take a report and it says I'm introvert, and other days it's extroverted. But... I imagine have a lot of us here like that too. And so sometimes you can hear this kind of thing and you feel like, man, like I can't have a whole bunch of people over. I don't do well in groups. So, you know, you can meet with just one person or two people over coffee. That's still 
hospitality, that's still loving someone well and earnestly, especially if you keep up with them over a long period of time. Commitments don't last very long in America. And so if you stay in someone's life invested, just listening, being a good friend, praying with them, that's loving someone earnestly. And the point then is not that we feel this as a burden, but that we would really use our imaginations and think about what would our church be like if we were known for that kind of love. Like we've barely, I think, scratched the surface in each of our lives of experiencing the joy of that kind of Christian community. Imagine what it would be like if we all committed to walk in obedience to the truth so that we can be set free for such sincere and earnest brotherly love. That kind of church is what is attractive and necessary in our world, even if you don't have a building. I'm in. Amen. I've never done that before. That's why I love it. <laughs> Cameron's holding in his laughter. He's very gracious to me. So now that the Presbyterians try to pretend to be a Baptist minister, let's turn back to the text before I get too crazy and go Pentecostal or something. Um, so we're gonna, I'm going to read the whole passage again just to put it all together. Um, we're going to turn back to the text and see a love born of God's imperishable word. So here again these words as we, we hear the whole thing now. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and its glory like the flower of grass, and the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So it's essential that we follow the train of thought that Peter puts out in these verses because, again, if we don't listen to what comes next, then all we're going to hear Peter say is, do better, try harder, you're not doing good enough. But he turns our attention in these latter verses to the power source that God has given us so that we can love each other well. He says, since you have been born again, you are able to do this. Being born again, that's not something any of us did. It's something God, by his grace, does to every one of his redeemed and beloved adopted children. Now the phrase born again believer though, it has a lot of baggage in America. It's been spun around in politics over the decades in all sorts of ways. And a lot of times we tie it to a radical and memorable conversion experience. And some of us have had those experiences and some of us have not. And if you haven't had that kind of experience, you have to be careful because when you hear this phrase born again, you can start to get really anxious and wring your hands and be like, I don't know if I, really had that kind of experience. Like, I don't know if what you're talking about when you say you were born again really happened to me. And then before you know it, your mind starts spinning and you start questioning your whole salvation. Like, man, what if, what if I'm not saved? What if Christ is going to say to me, depart from me? I never knew you. And you've questioned your whole existence as a Christian. But Peter did not mean for this idea to do that to us. And I don't think we're intended to take the imagery this literally, but I think it's, it's a helpful thought experiment for, for kind of doing away with some of that anxiety. Think about this. You know for a fact you were born of your biological parents, but not because you remember it. You know it because they testify to it, there are documents that testify to it, and your personality, your characteristics, your features, especially your genetics, they all testify to it, even though you have no memory of this thing. And in the same way, for many Christians, you have no memory of being born again. You don't have one particular moment or day or something that happened to you that you can identify as like, that's when it happened. 
But God's word testifies to it. The work he's doing in your heart testifies to it. Other people can see what he's doing in your life and that testifies to it. The very fact that you are here and you are wanting to worship your God in truth and in spirit, that testifies to it. You have been born again, even if you don't have some specific memory tied to it. So Peter does not mean the idea of being born again be some sort of litmus test that makes you freak out and doubt your Christianity. In fact, he was saying it to give his audience something firm to hold on to. Remember what they are going through. They are hated and persecuted by the rulers of the day. We don't know what that's like. And so Peter's trying to remind them, he's saying, look, I know everything in your life seems to scream that the Roman Lord has a lot more power than Christ the Lord. And it's not true. The Roman Empire and all its glory and military might, it is but like the grass and the flower which will fade and wither when plucked up. He's trying to point them to something that they can hold on to, even if everything in their life seemed like it could perish with a snap of a finger. Saying, God's grace is sufficient and it's a foundation for you. And again, for us, while we may not know that kind of persecution, we do, we do feel this tension of existing in the perishable and longing for the imperishable. Um, Cameron, Robbie, and I have been reading this book by Dan Allender called The Sabbath. It's been a really good book. It's Robbie's favorite. You should ask him about it. He loves Dan Allender's writing style. Um, and uh, that's, that's a joke, but he, he makes fun of me, and I, I kind of like some of his imagery, and it's been a good journey. But this passage on Monday um, really struck me as I was thinking about this text. Allender is, is talking especially to people um, in the middle class, but it doesn't just apply to them. But he says this as he's talking about the Sabbath being a haven from destitution. He says, there are two categories of destitution that are real for the middle class. The first is the emptiness of an uncertain future. And the second is the emptiness of the unrealized present. And then he goes on and says, you know, of course, that's not only the middle class, but especially in the middle class, when you have enough money where you're not always wondering where your next meal is coming from, but you can't just get whatever you want. Like, these are the kinds of ways you tend to feel destitution, he says. Applying that to this text, what that means is that we feel the perishability of our lives and that there's so many things that are uncertain. And we think about, think about how am I ever going to pay off this debt, my student loans, this house, this car? Is the college going to accept me? Am I going to make friends on Wednesday when I go back to school? Is my health going to hold up long enough to raise my kids? Is this job going to last? That's just to name a few. And then what he means by the unrealized present, he says we all have these things that we hoped would have happened in our lives by now. I wish I'd, I'd hoped by now I would have been married or I would have had kids. I'd hoped that I would have finished that degree, that that relationship would have healed and I'd be able to speak to that person the way I used to again. I wanted to have taken that trip by now. I wanted to feel comfortable in my own skin by now. It's all ways where the, the perishability of our existence breaks in. Where even though our existence so often just seems tailored so that we would have no care in the world because there are Walmarts and fast food restaurants everywhere, we still feel it. There's something missing in the present and the future just seems slippery and uncertain. And yet that is where Peter's message just breaks in and gives us hope. He's quoting from Isaiah chapter 40, which is just a spectacular passage in scripture. And he quotes it and he points out that the word of God will remain forever. And he says, it is that word from which you've been born again. There's something imperishable from God's grace that has been put into you as a result of your redemption in Christ. 
So don't let that pass you by this morning. If you are a Christian, then God has changed you by his living and abiding word. Even if the change, coming back full circle from we were talking about earlier how some of us wrestle with the idea that our obedience can change us. Even if the change doesn't manifest itself in the ways you imagine it would and you hope it would and you long it would, the change is still real. You have been adopted and you are now called by God himself a child of his and he loves you. It may seem at times that you, know, you are just going through the daily grind and it feels like a hamster wheel existence and you feel like you're getting nowhere in life and yet the years keep ticking by. But that does not mean your life is in vain. And it doesn't mean you're just biding time until Christ returns. It's another Satan's fat lie that all that matters is everything on the other side of glory. You've been redeemed, and that's something that affects you now. So that you can grow in love for others. So that you can experience the love of the Father. Right now. And you might still look at your life and say, yeah, but I still, I don't see much new. Or even worse, I did and now it's gone. I saw it a few months ago and it's dried up again or a few years ago. But the weeds, they keep growing back. I can't shake this porn addiction or this other addiction. My, my depression, it creeps back from the shadows. I thought this new uh, counselor was really going to help or this new medication was really going to help. But it keeps creeping back. I keep getting lost in my own thoughts, tormented by them. My temper flares and someone I love always gets hurt thought I'd conquered that and it's back. I don't seem to have changed. But if you've ever watched a plant grow from a seed, you know how small it starts out. And weeds always, always grow 10 times faster than the plants and the flowers. You keep watering and you keep planting and you keep weeding. We have to do that in our spiritual lives as well on our own um, as individuals in Christ and also as the body of Christ together, always using the means of grace. And trusting that God is going to give the growth because he has promised he will bring to completion what he started. And that the growth that he will bring, no matter how slow or long in coming, it will last. Because it is born of a perishable seed. God didn't just go to Home Depot and buy like a little 89 cent pack of seed. He has brought out his word. It's technically, this is a total dad joke, but it's technically an heirloom seed. It's a seed by which he has made you his heirs. And his children. And so even if everything in your life still seems like it's not what you expected, that has changed. Your status has changed. You are God's child. And therefore, he calls you to live in light of that. So the question for us to think about then, this Lord's Day Sabbath, is how has God's word filled you with life and held you fast in our ever-changing broken world? And who in your life can you share this with? And again, especially if you, if you feel as though you're in more of a dry season, you may say, like, really none of it right now that means much to me at all. But if that's the case, think about if there's a passage in Scripture that in the past has meant something to you. And go back to it and think about it. Or you could even ask someone else, you could, you could open up and say, you know, how would you answer this question? You don't even have to tell them that you're struggling. You say, hey, like, how would you answer that question? What passage of Scripture means the most to you? Like, some of the passages that meant the most to me in my life have been passages I didn't stumble upon myself, but someone else just shared it with me. Like my life was changed when my father-in-law took me out to lunch when I was 16 and then on the way back shared Philippians 3 and said, are you wrestling with perfectionism? It's like, well, yeah, now that you mention it. And that passage has just been an anchor for my soul ever since. And so that's why I ask this question in two parts. Who in your life can you share this with? You know, you might be doing really well and that's great. And share that with someone because you never know who in this room or who in this wide world needs to hear 
the living and abiding word of our God. I mean, look around this room and think about all the stories sitting here right now. Stories that have already been lived, stories waiting to be told, stories waiting to be lived. Both kinds of stories require that we love one another well, sincerely and earnestly. And then in your mind's eye, just think about all of the, the people you interact with, all of those stories, all of those people that you could share the imperishable word of God with. I, I think I've mentioned this quote from the pulpit before, um, but I'm going to read it in, in greater context. It's from C.S. Lewis's The Weight of Glory. Um, some of you not here you've read this before. It's a spectacular quote, so follow along with me if you want. It's a little bit longer. He says this. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals with whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit, immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. This does not mean that we are to be perpetually solemn. This does not mean that we are to be perpetually solemn. We have to know that, Presbyterians. We must play. But our merriment must be of that kind, and it is, in fact, the merriest kind which exists between people who have, from the outset, taken each other seriously, meaning no flippancy, no superiority, no presumption. And our charity, our love, must be a real and costly love, here there a sincere and earnest love, with deep feeling for the sins in spite of which we love the sinner, no mere tolerance or indulgence, which parodies love as flippancy, parodies merriment. This quote just haunts my imagination. And a lot of times, especially when I'm going to work and I'm just kind of frustrated or just feel like I'm in a rut and grumbling about like, oh man, I've got to work with all these people. It's like a bucket of cold water that kind of wakes you up from a lazy morning sleep when really you should be up cutting the grass or doing something else. It reminds me like, no, like interacting with people who are made in the image of God. Or it's like the sunset whose golden gaze finally reveals the true beauty of your own backyard despite the weeds. There's beauty here, and it's been in front of me the whole time. Lewis, his words here, it's a call to open our eyes and our hearts to see the image bearers of God that are all around us, to see the stunning reality of, that we get to look in the eye every day. And so you and I and every human being on this remarkable little planet, people are, to answer the question from the beginning, people are made in the image of God. And we are called to love them. And so, how does this passage apply to us? What applies to us in that we should cultivate a sincere and an earnest love for one another. And again, the one another, that's just the start. It's not that we just love the people in this room and only the people in this room, but we love well in this room so that one, we have a place that's worth coming to out of the world. And two, so that we can be well equipped and well trained to go out into the world, to seek the lost, to love them well. To see them become family. And two, this passage applies to us in that it reminds us of who we are. If you are a Christian, you have been born again of the imperishable, abiding, living word of God. And you are called to live like it as an adopted son or daughter in Christ. And so with all this in mind, let us go before the throne of grace in prayer. And give thanks to our God for loving us so well. Almighty God, uh, we come before you, Lord. We give you thanks that... No matter um, what our mistakes and our, our sins, Lord, our burdens, our baggage, God, you have called us into your presence. Lord, and in Christ, you have called us sons and daughters. Oh, Lord, there are so many things that 
that keep us from loving each other well. Um, so many idols we put up, Lord, our own convenience, God, our own fear, anxiety of, of being known. Um, Lord, but would you continue step by step, Lord, breaking those things down. Help us, Lord, to be a church that is known for its love for one another. Oh, Jesus, as you said your disciples would be known, so may we be. Lord, as we walk in obedience to the truth, help us to remember that the, the truth sets you free. Lord, we thank you that you have put something in our lives that we can hold to, that your word is an anchor, Lord, and that you've put that word in our hearts. Lord, help us to take the time, even this morning as the service ends, to be a part of one another's lives. Lord, to ask questions or to introduce ourselves to someone we haven't met. Lord, again, and may that not be burdened to us, but may it be joyous and meaningful and rich and full of your grace and glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.